you're listening to a message from Kaleo Phoenix, a church plant in downtown Phoenix that creates space for people to practice the ways of Jesus together. Good to see you all, Kaleo. Feels like you're far away today. Uh, but hey, you know, you just sat where you wanted to sit, and we're glad about that. Uh, you are joining us during the season of Epiphany, so it's even fitting that we sang some of the songs we sang, and Aaron, or Emma even prayed some of the things she prayed, because the season of Epiphany is uh, a time in which we receive God's presence or we listen for God speaking. And, and so that's what we're going to do uh, with our time this evening, because we're definitely going to need some divine intervention as we make our way through our passage tonight. Our passage for this Sunday, the gospel passage for the seventh uh, week of Epiphany is Luke 6, 27 through 36. Uh, I'll, I'll get there in a moment, so you feel free to turn to it if you'd like. Um, it's, a, it's a tough passage, and, and what's interesting about this one is I, I would actually say it's probably one of the most challenging things Jesus directs us to do. And on top of this directive is this challenge to embrace what we might call as nonviolent resistance combined with enemy love. And it starts to really break apart uh, the cycles of violence that are all around us in this current cultural moment. It's a pretty subversive passage. I would say it's not a cozy passage. Uh, we'll be reminded that we are loved, and so it's a good thing we're already centered in that as we sang, because now we're going to be challenged to move that out into the world. And this is the way of Jesus, though. That's, that's what's here. Like, this is essential to following Jesus, this command that he gives to us. So let me just give us a bit of context to help us understand where this particular passage is set and what's going on. This is in the midst of what Luke calls the Sermon on the Plain, which parallels Matthew's account, which is the Sermon on the Mount. So Luke has all of these people gathered at a level place which is important because there's something like rugged about the way that Luke tells the story of Jesus. There's something that intersects people's lives in a little bit different way. So here they all, the ordinary people of Judea are gathered around with Jesus. They had just been up on a mountain and Jesus named 12 people as apostles, right? You're familiar with them, but then there's a bunch of followers that come down the mountain with them. So present in this moment when Jesus is about to speak, are the apostles, 12 of them, disciples of Jesus, we don't know how many, and a crowd gathered in to listen as well. And in the midst of this, right, the, the Roman Empire is like sitting behind them almost, built upon the backs of the peasants sitting on the plain with him. Their bodies litter the streets and the ports, like that's a real reality, Jesus' eyes move over tenant farmers and fishermen across the faces of beggars and widows. Like, think about this group that's gathered here with Jesus. The heat is beating down on them and surrounding the world that Jesus has entered into. There's political repression. There's economic terror. And that's what he's speaking to these followers, to these disciples, or those trying to figure out if they actually want to follow this rabbi. And in the midst of this, he tells them to bless and not curse their enemies. Okay, 
interesting message. Here's how he says it. He says, but to you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, offer the other cheek also. If someone demands your coat, offer your shirt also. Give to anyone who asks. And when things are taken away from you, don't try to get them back. Do to others as you would like them to do to you. If you love only those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get credit? Even sinners do that much. And if you lend money only to those who can repay you, why should you get credit? Even sinners will lend their money to other sinners for a full return. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great. And you will truly be acting as children of the Most High. For he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. You must be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. Let's pray and then we'll see if we can do something with this. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are here among us. Again, we acknowledge your presence with us. We receive the reminder that we are loved by you, that we are seen and known by you, that you desire to be with us. And so in this space that we've created to hear from you, to be with you, to be with one another, we ask that you would break into our lives in some meaningful way. Would you adjust our hearts? Would you transform the people that we are so that we might actually be people who follow in the way of your son, Jesus? I pray that we would receive a a hard and challenging message in the context of the reminder that you invite us to be set free to set one another free, to follow in the liberating love that you give us in Jesus. Pray for myself. I pray that these words would be for you and from you, that I wouldn't pray anything that would uh, throw us way off track. And if I said something like that, Lord, I pray that we would forget it as well. Uh, May we bring glory to you and may we learn to love you and walk in your ways. It's your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so at the outset of this passage, Jesus speaks the language of epiphany, right? This season of listening. And he says, the very first thing he says to you who are willing to listen. You just, let's pause. Like, are you? Are we? Are we willing to listen? I don't don't even like, they're not even like saying answer that question. You might not be willing to right now. And I'm just glad you're here. You know, it's good to be together. But Jesus is saying, as he's gathered these people on the plane here, he says, to those of you who are willing to listen. And then he has this starting point. And his starting point is so central to the mission of Jesus, and it's love. But it starts somewhere where we don't usually expect it. It's an active love. And Jesus says, but to you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray those who hurt you. Like what a word for the current moment that we find ourselves in. I don't know if you know this, but the, the world we walk around in at the moment is pretty partisan. 
Yeah, there's some, some people are angry at one another quite often, right? We, we live a bit in a, in a binary of, you know, right versus left. That's unfolding here. But here Jesus seems to be doing something that's even more radical than saying they should change what they're up to. And it's even more radical than like a, hey, all sides should figure this out. It's on like a whole nother dimension that Jesus is speaking when he says to love your enemies. It's not even just like a third way or a middle way. It's beyond that. It's the radical way, if you will, right? It's like all sides in the sense that wherever you find suffering, that's where Jesus is going to be also. And that's the vantage point that we look out into the world and we say, what does it mean then from there? So we stand with those who suffer to love our enemies. It's a real, real question. So for, to follow Jesus along this way of loving our enemy, we ask the question, who? Who is our enemy? Which is an interesting question, right? Because we might all say somebody different or a different group of people. Jesus helps us identify a bit who our enemies might be. He says it's those who hate you, those who curse you, those who hurt you. Okay. Who is our enemy? Let's pause for a second right here as we think about that question as images or names or faces roll through our mind. In much of my experience with this passage and specifically with the directive to love our enemies, I've found it's our tendency to think solely about our individual enemies. As in who hates me, curses me, hurts me. And reality exists where Jesus is teaching on enemy love. It's been used to hold women captive to abusive relationships, to keep people from reporting sexual abuse in the church. This teaching has been weaponized against vulnerable communities who are trying to escape the boot of oppressive powers. That can't be the answer that Jesus was looking for, could it? So maybe we need a little bit of help identifying and defining our enemy. How do we get to the root of that and not just say them? Something else that Jesus is up to here. There's a woman named Melissa Flora Bixler, and she wrote a book, How to Have an Enemy. It's a legit book. I highly recommend it. You can ask me to remind you the title later. Here's what she says. She says, because the church is a community of reconciliation, and what she's building on when she says the church is a community of reconciliation, she's saying, because the whole thing that Jesus came to do from the beginning was to reconcile us to God so that we might be reconciled to one another, which is the starting point of what God intended from creation, right? So if the church is a community of reconciliation, we recognize that we bear both victim and victimizer in our bodies, the work of truth-telling about our enemies is not simply to identify who is against us out there, but to help us lay down our enmities toward one another within the complicated terrain of our lives, our relationships, our multiple and intersecting identities, and our action in the world. Enemy is robust. There's something that Jesus is doing here. Remember where he's located. Remember who he's speaking to. He's doing something that's communal and holistic. 
His idea isn't that he would get this entire group of people gathered on the plane with him to just figure out who their one individual enemy is and go and love them. There's more at play because of who he's talking to and when he's doing it. In light of that, as you know, and Donald mentioned, it's Black History Month. And so with that in mind, what we're going to do is we're going to let James Cone guide us through this passage. James Cone is one of the key voices and fathers of black liberation theology. He's got a couple books that are worth accessing if you're like, who, who should I read during Black History Month? You should read this one first. Actually, it's called The Cross and the Lynching Tree. Uh, and then what I'm going to use a bit is called God of the Oppressed. And so he's going to give us some language to pay attention to the ground that Jesus was walking on and stirring forth and how that meets us in our present day world as well. So incidentally, we've been actually using language that James Cone originated with in the, the life of Kaleo from its foundation because there's this goal that we set out with. When we began as a church four years ago and tried to figure out how to be a church through the pandemic, and so here we are on this moment in time. But one thing that we've always been saying, this is, this is where we see the kingdom of God manifested, is being the multi-ethnic family of God, being representative of, of every tribe and tongue and nation, so to speak, right, gathered together, and there in that moment is when you see and witness and experience the fullest representation of what God has always intended to do. And in order then to be faithful to being the multi-ethnic family of God and not just representation is to say what's at the root of keeping us from being these people. And at the root of that, at least in our country, right, is the history of anti-black racism that starts all the way back to the founding of the country that we're in now and keeps us from being these new people together. James Cone is going to help us pull some of these roots out. And he's going to identify this reality that the powers and principalities, right? So not just, again, people or faces, but the entirety of the evil and enemy at play is that there is this reality that white supremacist terror has grown from the roots of anti-blackness predating the transatlantic slave trade. So the idea is that from the foundation of this gathering even is something that was created around anti-blackness or racism and has created the entirety of what we might call white supremacist terror, which is like a gazillion definitions that we could talk about later, but we're gonna figure out what Jesus might have to say about this. Because the thing is this, we can't actually grasp the depth of what Jesus is saying here if we do not confront our enemies in the present day, if we don't figure out how the enemy is present in this moment, we actually aren't going to figure out what Jesus was up to. So James Cohen aligns us with the mission of Jesus in his work, God of the Oppressed. Here's what he says. He says, there is no liberation independent of Jesus' past, present, and future coming. Jesus is the ground of our present freedom to struggle and the source of our hope that the vision disclosed in our historical fight against oppression will be fully realized in God's future. The tension of the kingdom that is already here, but is still coming. 
He says, in this case, liberation is not a human possession, but a divine gift of freedom to those who struggle in faith against violence and oppression. Again, imagine the people that Jesus is speaking to and how James Cone is now connecting this to the reality of all who've struggled against violence and oppression. He says, liberation is not then an object, but the project of freedom where the oppressed realized that their fight for freedom is a divine right of creation. It's always been intended that all God's people would be free together, liberated to move in the ways of Jesus together. So how does this Jesus-initiated liberation unfold? How do we get there? How is the dignity of personhood restored to the oppressed, whoever that might be and however they might identify that way? But first, resistance. Let me say a quick word about resistance. Because in Matthew's encounter of this, right, in Sermon on the Mount, he says, do not resist the evildoer. Luke doesn't say that. And I think there's a reason Luke doesn't say it because I think it gets misconstrued, right? So this language of resistance can be confusing. It's almost like Jesus would be saying, don't do anything at all. And then he's like, turn the other cheek, give your coat, walk an extra mile, and you just go bam, bam, bam. You take another punch after punch and you roll over and you're like, see, look, I was just like Jesus. They crushed me. That cannot be what Jesus is saying here, right? So this word, resist, in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, it's a little bit under-translated, I guess you could say. That's how Walter Wink would describe it. He would say there's a more robust definition to the phrasing, and it's not do not resist an evil one, it's stand against the evil one. And in doing this, here's what he's saying. Jesus is not telling us to give in to evil, but to refuse to oppose it on its own terms. Do not become that which opposes you. Do not use the methods that those structures use to oppose you. Jesus is saying that we have to resist evil in the way in which we have to stop this spiral of unending violence. So he's got some interesting ideas for us. Here's how Luke says it. Luke gives us two examples of this subversive strategy to, to undo the powers, if you will, that be. He says, if someone slaps you on one cheek, offer the other cheek also. If someone demands your coat, offer your shirt also. Okay, this is my favorite part. Because hold on, what's going on here, right? How many times have you been told, turn the other cheek means you just take it, right? Or just give up your stuff. They took your coat, just give up, give up the outer coat too, right? There's something else going on here. And this is Jesus's nonviolent resistance, if you will. Or you could take Dr. King's nonviolent direct action as a way of how Jesus is speaking here. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull a little from this other book that I brought with me called Walter Wink. It's called The Powers That Be. Uh, it's a wild book too. Here's what he says about turning the other cheek. Right? He says, first of all, you have to think of it like this, because the, the translation is with the right cheek. How would you hit the other's right cheek with your right hand? This way, backhand, right? You'd have to, you'd have to backhand. You can't hit a right cheek with the right cross. Everybody catching that, right? Like, we're like, I'm not a fighter, man. Right? Like, yeah. 
right? It's a backhand. Just take my word for it. We can act it out later, right? So, so keep this in mind. Keep the exchange that's unfolding here in mind. Jesus is saying to turn the other cheek. What he's saying is take back your dignity, take back your personhood, and defeat the humiliation that is at place. The only backhand that would occur in the culture at that time is somebody with power seeking to humiliate one that they have power over. The person that they have power over has no power to be seen as equals other than to deny the humiliation being present there. So by offering the other cheek, what the person is doing or what Jesus is saying to do is either treat me like an equal and hit me with a fist or walk away. Now, Again, let's think beyond the individualized movement of such an action as this. This is wild that Jesus is teaching this, by the way, right? Because if it's not just, hey, don't get, next time you get hit, do the thing. It's like, this isn't the easy way out. But if all of the people without power, who are being humiliated by those who do have power, begin to work up creative solutions to take back their dignity as people, at some point in time, it's got to subvert. Now, Jesus is also saying that's in the age to come, and it's a long way off, but in this present moment, how do we do that? Same concepts at play here when we have to get... Uh, well, how does he say it? If someone demands your coat, offer your shirt also. So, so this is playing out in a, in a debt-debtor system, right? Like, so somebody's saying you have a debt to pay, and, you ha- and, and in this instance, who Jesus is talking to has no recourse to get their coat back. It might be land. They take land. It might be money. It might be people, right? Like, all of, they have no recourse to do that. So he comes up with this saying. It's, this is wild, you guys. Because what he's about to say is essentially take off all your clothes. That's what he's saying. Give him the other coat. It's not like he went to his closet and grabbed his other shirt and handed it to him. They're saying at that moment in time, they have the piece of clothing that is most important to you, your outer coat. Sometimes you'd sleep with it. It was like a blanket. You'd take it everywhere you go. All you have left is what's underneath. And he says, give them that too. And the idea is this. Can you imagine? You're in the court. The person without any power, without any say is just sitting there, right? And they're trying to take, he's like, fine. And he just strips down and he's standing there butt naked. Like that's how you take your dignity back. It seems wild. And there's a risk at play, right? And Jewish culture to see someone naked. It wasn't the one who was naked that would feel the shame. It was the one who saw the person naked. It was the only way to redeem your dignity, subvert the humiliation tactic in place. This is, this is why Jesus' call to love our enemy has actual meat to it. It's like, it's like guerrilla theater, right? It's like, come up with the most creative, wildest way to defeat the humiliation that keeps happening all around you. And then when a group of people collectively move in that together, safety happens, but also transformation, also a dawning of a new community. So Jesus knew what he was saying when he said to love your enemy, and he knew that it was going to be hard. 
To call forth an enemy was not an empty concept to these gathered with him at the base of this mountain. They knew that the enemy was a part of a whole system. And so with that in view, it seems that Jesus implies that the biblical test case for love of God is love of neighbor. And the biblical test case for the love of neighbor is the love of enemy. So here Jesus is just saying it's all bound up here. James Cone, again, he helps us unpack how we interpret these words to love our enemies by realigning the lens, which is what I'm doing as well. I'm trying to realign the lens with which we read the words of Jesus. He says, in the history of Western theology, we seldom find an ethic of liberation derived from the God of freedom, which is Jesus is there to set these people free, but rather an ethic of the status quo derived from Greek philosophy and from the political interests of a church receiving special favors from the state. He says, instead of standing unquestionably with the outcasts and downtrodden as the God of the Bible does, he witnesses over the history of Western theology an ethic that does more to preserve the status quo than to change it. And here we might be confronted with our own actions as enemies. That's why it's so complex. We might not be backhanding someone in the street, but we might be a part of a system that makes it feel like somebody is being backhanded in the street. So Cone goes on to say, if American theologians and ethicists, or he just probably means everybody, had read the scripture through the eyes of the black slaves and their preachers, then they would have created a different set of ethical theories of the good. He's saying, join those that Jesus was gathered with down there on the ground, the bottom of the mountain in Luke. And he's saying, look at the world through their eyes and understand what it is they're after. What that liberation means, if you will. It's a lot to ponder there, perhaps a starting point for reading scripture. And then lastly, Cone reminds us this. He says, for to hear the message of scripture is to hear and see the truth of God's liberating presence in history for those who are oppressed by unjust social structures. This is the very move of Jesus in the Sermon on the Plain in Luke 6. He says we've got to upend the structures that make it so. We walk around in this world and some are being slapped and some have things stolen from them. Right, and some are left with nothing, and some are pushed to the margins, and some are killed, and some are stuck under the boot of oppressive powers. That's what he's calling for us to flip. And so listen to these words as I finish up. Love your enemies, Jesus says. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great, and you will truly be acting as children of the Most High, for he is kind to those who are thankful, unthankful and wicked. You must be compassionate, just as your Father is compassionate. Isn't that wild in the midst of what I feel like is a, is a passage full of like some form of tension in our lives? Jesus says you must be compassionate. Again, to the group of people who find themselves almost to a person stuck in some form of life that suffers under oppression. 
He invites them to this posture of being compassionate as God is compassionate. And tied up in that is this challenge. And we sing about it and we pray about it and we name it. And I think it's tied to this theological reality, if you will, that God's self is an embrace. That is always what God is offering to us. The Father, Son, and Spirit, as they move together, they are, they are holding one another, if you will. Even as Donald and Kelly saying that God will never let us go. I think there's this image that I want us to hold in our head, not like, you know, not that's not what God's like. Like so much room, just the squishiest, widest embrace. Sometimes you can get real close, but there's nowhere you're gonna go where that embrace still isn't unfolding. That's how Jesus can stand in this place in the midst of an oppressive regime, people who are dying and who know the pain of suffering in that world all around them. And he can say, be compassionate because it's the way out. To live with your arms open towards one another is the way out. You cannot love your enemy with your arms crossed over your chest. You, can, you just can't. There's a theologian, his name's Miroslav Volf, and he, he writes about this idea of the embrace. And he says there's four structural movements to the embrace of the other. You could call this the way in which we love our enemy. He says the first movement is just to open our arms. And that's the invitation, is that our posture would be with our arms open. Because it isn't to say that the one who's being oppressed goes and hugs their oppressor and like, hey, that's all good. No worries here. That cannot be the solution. There's no justice in that. That's just more oppression and abuse. But we can all exist with our arms open, willing to embrace the other. The second movement is waiting. Waiting. Because you cannot close your arms until justice is done. You can live in a posture of embrace, but you don't need to hug any person who's sitting there to slap you. Until they identify the dignity back in you and seek forgiveness and reparations for what they've done to you, then you cannot have the embrace, right? But when that happens, you get to the third movement, and that's the closing of the arms. And in the embrace, it is indistinguishable who is the guest and who, in the, who is the host there, because you are enfolded in exactly what God has intended from creation. It sometimes unfolds in pockets in the world we live in today, and you know what that is? The kingdom of God here now. And it will unfold again when Jesus returns and we will be in one big old embrace. But justice will be done for that to happen. And then the fourth movement is opening your arms again because that's the cycle. It's circular and we keep going. So the invitation for any of us to love our enemies is just to begin in a place in which we might, as our posture, open up our arms to another you can love your enemy from a really long ways away. And sometimes that's the safest. I want to give God the last word here. And I'm not even sure what we might do to set that up. Perhaps you would ask God to reveal your enemies, to open your arms. Perhaps you need to begin to pray for them. Perhaps you need to ask God to forgive you 
for the moments in which you know you've participated in being the enemy. I don't know what it is that God's saying, but there's probably something in all of this that God would want you to hear. So I just invite you to sit still with him for a few moments here. We'll be silent, we'll be still. And as Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, loving one's enemy leads disciples to the way of the cross and into communion with the crucified one. So sit in communion with Jesus. I'll close this in a moment. just stay in a posture of of listening and prayer and what we've heard from Jesus today we know on some level we're being invited to, to love our enemies to pray for them even to forgive them if you're like any of us here, this can seem impossible. So we need Jesus to show us the way. It's by the same spirit of God who lives in Jesus, who now lives in us, that allows us to move forward in any of this. And as Jesus is prone to do, he goes first and shows us the way, all the way to the cross. Jürgen Moltmann summarizes it like this. Jesus did not die cursing his enemies, but with a prayer for them on his lips. And if you think of the movement that Luke is setting up in his gospel, near the end, he concludes it like this with Jesus on the cross, enduring the, the pain and the scorn of his enemies, suffering under their fists and their taunts and their nails and their whips and their crowns of thorns. Jesus is placed on this cross. They set it in the ground and they lift it up towards the sky and it sets into place and Jesus is strung up there. The one who suffers In some way, it can only be the Spirit of God in Jesus. He looks down from that cross, not yet dead, breathing his last breaths. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. 
This same Jesus who sat the base of a mountain with his followers pressed in tight and said to them, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who hurt you. Didn't offer some words that he never intended to fulfill. Instead, as he breathes his last breath, he calls out for forgiveness. He'd rather die than retaliate against his enemies, curse his enemies. For Jesus is the very one who said, you must be compassionate, just as your father is compassionate. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear. I pray that we have been willing listeners today to your Son, Jesus. And I pray that as individuals and as a community, we would leave this place in some way aligned with you, Jesus. We would receive your liberating love. We would be prepared to enact it. We would join the fight against violence and oppression without using the means of the evil being done among those in our community, those we love, those we care about, and those we stand in solidarity with. But as we're reminded, we need the power and presence of your spirit help us to rely on you to trust you and to go to the places to find you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. For more resources or information about Kaleo, please visit our website at kaleophx.com or follow us on social media. If this episode has been helpful to you, let us know or share it with someone you know.